Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. We're very excited today. Well, we're quite excitable in general, but I'm very excited today because we're dealing with something, Chris. Uh, I don't think we've actually, apart from the whole Bobfest Band of Brothers thing, we've not really done much on airborne troops, have we? No, no, we haven't. And um, I think the British do it better than the Americans. So uh, <laughs> lay that out there and cause controversy right at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> So I'm, I'm, I'm actually really excited about this because um, I've actually got a couple of Mark's books on my bookshelf. Uh, we've got Mark Urban, who is a journalist and a historian. You've probably heard of him. He has written many, many books on various military history subjects, spanning from the fusiliers and rifles, which I've got. I was showing my daughter on the weekend when I saw this email come through, uh, up to the tank war in World War Two and up to Task Force Black on the SAS. And he's here today to talk to us about his new book, Red Devils, the Trailblazers, and of the Parachute Regiment of World War II. So welcome aboard, Mark. Thank you very much. Delighted. I have to ask you before we get started, what made you go, what made you want to write this one? Well, you know, I've done a few of these books, um, uh, as Chris mentioned, uh, which essentially, they're kind of, I call them organisational biographies. They're trying to look at a group of people in an extreme situation, obviously war, um, and how they gel together and what happens to them and who makes the grade, as it were, and who doesn't. And so I've done this for widely differing conflicts. So um, you've got the American Revolution in the 1770s and Fusiliers. Then you've got the rifles, which is basically like sharp um, in the Napoleonic Wars and the tank war, uh, which is the Second World War. Um, And it, it was actually Penguin who said could you do this? Could you apply this treatment to the parachute regiment? And I thought, well, obviously, rather a legendary uh, bunch of people. So I thought, that's interesting. And I started to look at it. And I thought, well, I can see a problem, which maybe we can talk about in narrative terms. uh, But then I can see all sorts of opportunities. Um, And I just uh, quickly found lots of great stories of guys who were the first ones to join. And I thought, well, if we look at a few of the pioneers, maybe even if we can get some or all of them in the same plane, about to go on the same drop when they're training, and then follow what happens to all of them in the war, um, then that would be a really good way to tell the story of the parachute regiment in World War II and how it was set up. So, so that was the thing that really hooked me into it and, and got me thinking, yeah, this could be really good. Absolutely. It's, um, I always think that history is better told from the from the guys who experienced it rather than the, than the people in the back. But airborne troops, they're quite a new idea uh, by the Second World War. They're a massive departure from traditional army units. What, what was the origin of the thought for airborne troops? Yeah, well, it's true. I mean, look, the very early uses of the parachute, they, they, they started to, to think about them for observers in balloons and towards the end of the First World War for for pilots, obviously. Um, But in the interwar years, um, 
various uh, military visionaries or pioneers, or call them what you will, uh, started to think, well, what if we get a load of guys uh, leaping out of the plane over an objective? It's a way of suddenly uh, creating uh, a force in being maybe hundreds of miles from where your enemy expects them to be and delivering some dramatic results, you know, capturing a bridge or an airfield or something like that. And uh, the interesting one about this is that whereas with the tank wars, the, the, the British were pioneers of the tank in the First World War, although to some extent they then squandered the, the kind of lead they had in technology and thinking about it in the interwar years. But they, the British were not pioneers with military parachuting. It was really the Germans and, and the Russians, uh, or the Soviet Union, I should say, and, and to some extent, the Italians. So the, those were the three nations that had really invested time and effort and trained thousands of people in each of those nations to do this uh, before the Second World War broke out. And when Churchill gave an order in, in the summer of 1940 uh, to the British military to do the same, to form a, a parachute corps, uh, it, it was a, it was a game of catch up to some extent because the Germans had already used them to great effect as part of their blitzkrieg uh, system. So so they used them to seize a key fortress in Belgium when they invaded Belgium. They used them to to seize a key bridge in Greece when they invaded Greece. So th- that that was 1941, but the Belgium use was already in 1940. So other people were doing it and sort of showing the way. And, uh, and the British felt that we've got to catch up on this because th- there's great possibilities to, 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 to getting hundreds of people jumping out of aeroplanes and then using them to some uh, decisive effect. So as is standard, there's disagreements about how they should be used, isn't there? Um, can you outline what people's issues are? What's the difference in thinking? Well, that's absolutely right. Um, when they start off, I mean, you, you know, um, Churchill issued some orders in the weeks after the Dunkirk evacuation, where Britain really was uh, in, a, in a pretty pitiable state. It had lost uh, most of the equipment for its field army, although it had got most of the people off the beaches. Uh, it was then bracing itself for some kind of attempt to, to land in, in England or some kind of invasions, Operation Sea Lion, so-called by the Germans. And I think what Churchill was seeking to do was um, create possibilities for carrying the war to them. So in, 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 and not just accepting that we were just going to be holed up on, on sort of fortress Britain and, and waiting for the Germans to do whatever they wanted to do by way of bombing or invasion or all the rest of it. So this is when in the summer of 1940, Churchill both formed the special operations executive to, to parachute saboteurs and spies into occupied Europe and, and, you know, in the memorable phrase, set Europe ablaze. Uh, and he also then said, all right, well, let's, let's have some parachutists too, because we could do raids with these guys. And that could constantly be a way of keeping the Germans on their toes. Uh, and indeed the Italians in, in, the, in North Africa or the South of Europe. So, so that was the concept at first. By the end of the war, you've got these huge operations like Arnhem and the Rhine crossing operation involving thousands of guys. You know, this isn't about a handful of saboteurs landing in northern France or, or a raid on a radar station, which was like the first operation that the parachute regiment did in 1942, uh, which was 120. You know, this, this is huge. And so the book, in a way, tells the story about the journey between those two ideas and those two positions that one is, OK, look, we're in trouble. It's really hard for us to still be in the war effectively against the Germans. So sabotage and raids could be one way of doing it, involving small numbers of really highly trained people, committed people. And the other is, no, no, the, the, airborne warfare can be used to sort of big effect if you capture a series of bridges across rivers as they attempted to do in Operation Market Garden in 1944, or if you attempt to force your way into the German homeland across the Rhine by the operation they did in the spring of 1945, that can have a big effect. And and it, it therefore requires big numbers, hundreds of aircraft, tens of thousands of troops, 
And that's the story, in a way, of the book about how they, they move from one perspective about what all this is for, why they're training these soldiers, into what, how they actually end up using them and how they develop and, and, and how they become, if you like, a, a central part of warfare once the, uh, the Allies have got on the front foot again uh, and are taking the offensive against the Axis powers. The first overseas deployment is um, 1st Brigade going into Tunisia in November 42. It's not a, it's not a great start for them, is it? Well, um, it's... It's 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 a fascinating episode, the Tunisian campaign, as you say. Uh, I mean, they they get there in in November 1942, so it's more than two years after they've been founded as an organisation, and it's the first chance they've really got to show what they can do. Uh, and, and so they've got a, a well, let's say eighteen hundred highly trained people in these three units in the first parachute brigade. They are absolutely as keen as mustard. And then, as you suggested, Chris, some of the early operations don't go too well. One or two of them went okay, um, but but the one that the second battalion was involved in. Now, this is this is the, the guys under under a very celebrated figure called Johnny Frost, who ends up being the guy on the bridge in Arnhem. Uh, uh, you know, memorably portrayed by Anthony Hopkins in the film A Bridge Too Far, but. Frost leads the 2nd Battalion in a raid into Tunisia in, in uh, late 1942, which is designed to seize airfields. And it really is an absolute uh, mess. Uh, they end up dropping uh, with no real sense to the objectives that have been chosen. There are no German aircraft on the airfields or anything like that. It's just empty ground. Uh, they're very quickly spotted and attacked by German and Italian troops nearby. And they end up having to basically go 80 kilometres cross country to get back to Allied lines, losing more than half of the unit, the 2nd Battalion of, of the Parachute Regiment, uh, which was committed on that operation. So I guess you can say that Tunisia w- was a very tough and in some ways bitter learning experience for the new organisation. Absolutely. And the they do find themselves in combat with the German airborne troops, don't they? So how do the two compare? Oh, yeah. Well, that's absolutely right. But so in, the, in, in a way, what happens quite quickly in, in Tunisia, and it, it happened on that operation when they were parachuted into, um, into CISO's airfields as well, is that very quickly they do come up against the German paratroopers, the Fallschirmjäger, and... The, the reason that Fallschirmjäger are there in that first operation is is because suddenly, because the Allies are landing in a part of North Africa where Hitler hadn't expected them to, the Germans are having to rush very quickly to come up with their own solutions. To, to They've now got the, the Brits and Americans and the French and everyone at their backs as well as to their fronts. And so they use an airborne uh, response. They, they, they fly over um, more bombers and fighters, but they also fly over paratroopers because they're the people who can do it fastest and get into position most quickly. So Johnny Frost and the 2nd Battalion, when they drop in Tunisia, they come up against this 5th uh, Airborne Regiment of, of the German uh, Luftwaffe, in fact. They're part of the Air Force. Uh, and very quickly they're engaged in combat with these guys. And, and when one reads the German accounts, they swiftly see that some of these paratroopers are uh, of quite a different category as soldiers to, to the Brits that they were expecting to face. So they find them a very tough uh, adversary. But they also find in the case of the 2nd Battalion operation that they they capture quite a few of the British paratroopers. And so they get to see one another eye to eye. And the Brits up to that point had been regarding the, the Germans as a bit of a model, really. Their, their early clothing and, and some of the methods they were thinking about how they would get into action, the way they would parachute, uh, putting their weapons into containers that would be dropped on their own parachutes, things like that. Ta- the tactics were all closely modelled on the German uh, uh, model. And, and indeed, to some extent, the ethos, the beliefs they tried to instill in those early Red Devils, were also modelled on the German ethos. Because the Germans obviously had been very successful uh, with some of these parachute operations that they carried out early in the war. So, so uh, you know, they were a clear model for emula- emulation. They were clearly picked troops, very tough uh, troops. 
And they did encounter them in North Africa. And as the campaign went on, there were a couple of battles where it was really, really uh, bitter close-in fighting between German and British paratroopers, particularly in March of 1943. Early on, it was very cold in the hills of Tunisia, and they were fighting one another uh, in this terrain that wasn't that dissimilar to somewhere like Dartmoor or somewhere, these upland uh, uh, plateaus where uh, they were basically fighting to try and control the borders of Tunisia. And the Germans were thrown against the, the British in a number of places, but in a place called the Sejanane Valley in particular, and it was very, very hard pounding. And it was from that battle in March uh, 1943 that the Red Devil's nickname originated because the Germans uh, had seen these troops. They realised they were up against paratroopers. They captured some of them in some of these actions. They knew who they were up against. And these guys digging into the red soil of the Tunisian uplands, they... They had become stained, uh, their clothes, with this reddish uh, soil. And that's why the Germans called them the Red Devils. And when I was um, researching into the book, um, quite late on, actually, I found a a letter home from one of the uh, parachute uh, battalion uh, junior officers. And he quoted from some orders that had been found on a captured German in March uh, 1943, which said that basically warned them that they were going up against British paratroopers. And they said, be careful. Uh, These are the best trained and toughest troops in all of uh, North Africa. They are devils. So once again, that term was used at that time in the German uh, uh, command to their own people who were going up against the British paratroopers. So I guess it's a long and roundabout answer to your question, Alex, but but uh, they, they modelled themselves on the Germans But within a few months of coming into action against those German paratroopers, the German paratroopers were taking a long, hard look and saying, oh, my word, this is a very tough adversary and and accepting in a sense that I think that they were on a par with them as soldiers. It's always good when you get um, a mark of respect from your enemy like that to say, you know, these are the best. It's one thing thinking of yourself as the best, but when uh, the enemy is referring to you as the best, that's uh, that's always a good thing. Yes, it, absolutely. It's extraordinary. What I've tried to do with all of these books, whether I'm writing about 1810 or 1944, or whatever it is, I, I think that always and regularly one must take the enemy's estimate. It's very easy for guys who've been through something terrible together and come through it to all say, oh, weren't we great? Or, you know, uh, didn't we achieve something fantastic as a unit? But I think you always have to measure those claims against what the enemy thought at a particular moment or after a particular operation. And, and, and that's what I've been careful to do with Red Devils, as, as I did with the other books, is to, look at the, is to look at the enemy accounts. And sometimes you'll see that, you know, British attempts of how many casualties they, they caused uh, proved to be rather high. And, and it, you know, it's worth checking the German ones in terms of setting the record straight. But at other times, you know, as we've just been discussing, when, when, when the Germans had come up against those paratroopers in Tunisia, uh, the, the legend stands up, if you like, and the, and the material that you find from the German sources does give a good sense of how formidable they thought they were as foes. The campaign in Tunisia was quite, was quite brutal, and uh, the paratroop regiment found themselves in quite intense fighting. Overall, what, what would you say was... I don't want to use the word appraisal, but I guess what, what is your appraisal of the uh, of the brigade's uh, time in Tunisia? Well, you know, people wrote even even quite soon after it happened. Uh, people wrote in the British Army and in the parachute regiment. This is where the regiment made its name, and I think that's right. Um, I think uh, you know, as we've just been discussing, the German appraisals of their ability as fighting soldiers were high uh, and they managed to hold out in situations where, you know, regiments to the left and right of them were beaten back. uh, And they did show uh, an extremely impressive capability as soldiers during the Tunisian campaign. So I think that's why it was quite important for me to have quite a bit about that campaign in the book. But uh, it was at a terrible cost. And 
the initial uh, band of volunteers who were summoned from the different corners of the British Army to form uh, the parachute battalions uh, late in 1941 and through into 1942. And that, that, that trawl ended up bringing in a, a couple of thousand volunteers, most of whom uh, got sent to Tunisia. And they were very high quality soldiers. A lot of them were, were uh, considerably older than the conscripts, uh, you know, guys in their mid to late 20s or even early 30s. Uh, whereas obviously the National Service soldiers were 18, 19. Uh, a lot of them were very experienced soldiers. One of the parachute regiment uh, founders described them as, as like a mercenary battalion uh, and said that 70% of them had been in action before. Now, this might have been as professional soldiers on the northwest frontier of India. Some of them had been in the international brigades in, in Spain, uh, one or two of them in the Foreign Legion. Uh, they, they were a real uh, bunch of adventurers. And the sad cost of the Tunisian campaign was that a big proportion of those pioneers who joined the parachute battalions, the three, the three that were sent there, uh, fell uh, either killed in action or wounded. Um, so by the end of it, they, they had established this stellar reputation. But there was a deep change, I think, within a lot of the men who'd survived uh, and a nervousness about going into action again that some of them uh, speak to quite freely in their in their journals or subsequent memoirs. So it, 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 it was a, a, a visceral, uh, unpleasant uh, encounter with, with the enemy, Tunisia, uh, and something that, that changed them forever, I think. Tell us about Operation Marston. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, well, that's a good cue um, to um, talk about the organisation as it emerged from Tunisia with the, some of the guys having the feelings that I've just described. So the, the next step in the war after North Africa, uh, which wound up in the May of 1943, was Italy. And for various reasons, the uh, Allied commanders decided, well, let's start in Sicily, the, you know, off an island, large island off the coast of Italy, where we can sort of get things right and, and not, not take the bull by the horns in actually going into Italy proper. Let's do Sicily first. And um, they had in mind all sorts of airborne operations involving the Americans, the 82nd Airborne Division, involving the British 1st Airborne Division. Lots more guys had come out in the spring of of 1943 to be with the first parachute brigade and so they had that whole organization had swollen up to like over 10,000 soldiers and they were looking at ways of saying well what, what can we do well they used the american paratroopers to drop just behind the naval landing zones the beaches to, to disrupt any uh, italian or german attempts to, to hit the american soldiers as they were coming ashore on the beaches in the south of sicily and on the east and southeast coast, the British thought, well, look, why don't we use the um, airborne landings, gliders and paratroopers to take some key bridges. And in, in other words, to ease the passage of the soldiers that are landing by sea and help them to get forward more quickly. So that's what they, they tried to do. And they had a they had a very, very difficult night um, with a glider landing. Uh, where, where a lot of the gliders got engaged accidentally by British uh, warships off the coast. And after all of that and loss of, of so many troops, 250 troops in that case, um, they fixed on a bridge south of the Sicilian uh, city of Catania. And they reckoned, well, this is the key route up the coast here, so we need to capture it and stop the Germans blowing it up. And that was Operation Marston. Uh, and the aim was to drop the first parachute brigade to seize that bridge. And that's indeed uh, what happened. Uh, they did drop them. They also had all sorts of problems when they flew in over the Allied warships standing off the coast of Sicily. They, too, got shot at. Lots of the planes were hit. 
some of the pilots just decided to turn back and head back towards North Africa because of the weight of fire that was coming up at them. And in the end, about a third uh, of the force that they'd originally intended never even dropped. It just went back to Africa or, or they ended up being shot down uh, by the British in, 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 the, uh, in the sea off, off uh, Sicily. Now, then of the ones they did drop, a lot of them were way off target. I mean, they might have been 10 miles away, eight miles away from the bridge or whatever, but not the sort of distances that guys on foot with all their kit could cover quickly in the hour or two that they had. And about a third of, of, the, of the soldiers were in the right place at the right time. They then proceeded to take this bridge, the Prima Sole Bridge. Um, and they, they had a lot of difficulties because the Germans had also decided this is a really significant point. And at the very same moment, they decided to drop their own paratroopers to try and stop the British taking the bridge. So when the, when the British paratroopers started landing down around there in the night, they found that they were stumbling across weapons containers and things like that attached to parachutes that weren't theirs. They were German ones that had been dropped a couple of hours before in a German attempt to seize the same ground. So you had an absolute uh, mayhem, really, in the night as these two different groups of paratroopers tried to get their stuff together, get into position. Obviously, some of them were, were engaging one another, uh, shooting one another. Quite a few uh, got taken prisoner. Uh, both Brits and Germans in this in this confusion. And the day dawned and the British just about held the bridge. They managed to take the explosives off it, which was the key thing they achieved. But they then lost it because the Germans put in a counterattack and, um, and managed to take the bridge. So it was a bit of a seesaw battle. Eventually, troops came up from, from the, the forces that had landed by sea. So like an armoured brigade came up with all its tanks and artillery and everything else and they were able to finally consolidate their hold on the bridge but it it was a chaotic operation and quite a few people were lost as prisoners there were also questions about how some people had behaved had some people used the darkness to basically hide and, and not go into action uh, and, and in one or two cases i think it's pretty obvious that when people did that it was because they had been through the North African battles. They were not keen on entering, uh, uh, entering action again. And, and they sought to hide. And there was one particular officer who was basically uh, sacked, for want of a better word. He was posted away from the 2nd Parachute Battalion because the, the, the commanding officer caught him out uh, hiding with, with several of his soldiers and not taking part in the battle for the bridge. So... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The whole thing was a pretty bitter learning lesson from the terrible things that had happened with the, with the Navy opening up on the planes as they went over to the scattering of the troops all over the place uh, and then the behavior of some of the troops when they got on the ground. But, you know, at the end of it all, they were able to say, well, look, uh, on the positive side of it, we, we managed to take the bridge for a while to remove the explosives. We saved the bridge. And in that sense, we helped the Allied advance. And, and certainly the generals who hadn't been part of all that confused going on in the night um, in Sicily, they, you know, Eisenhower and Montgomery, they both uh, wrote it up in a, in, a, in a very enthusiastic way 
and said, well, this was great. You know, we, we, we've achieved what we wanted and this sets the scene for more airborne operations. And they were obviously thinking about the invasion of Italy proper and, of course, uh, Normandy and D-Day and all those things that they knew lay ahead. It's interesting because we're, we're talking obviously about the high level stuff and about them knowing where it's going to go next and what the development is. But you've touched on something there, which I find more interesting. And that's we're talking about a new kind of warfare. Where, and just from my wheelhouse being the First World War, I know how much it fried the brains of some of the early tank crews, like the idea of that kind of warfare. So, I mean, there is fear. This is a a terrifying concept to take these young men and say, right, so you in the middle of the night are getting dumped in before anyone else gets there. It's it's not it's not something that they've got any like that that military experience has any experience of, is it? It's really new and it must have been absolutely terrifying for them. Yeah. Well, I think I think a lot of them were frightened. I mean, a, a lot of these guys, I mean, they, you know, particularly the early recruits of the parachute regiment, they were very tough guys, a lot of them. And they and they were ready for it. You know, they were they were up for it, even though I think intellectually, if they reflected, they they realized they were dropping into danger. There's there's a guy who um, I give particular attention to in 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 the uh, the Sicily operation, the Prima Soli bridge. Uh, because I think he, he's got some fascinating things to say. And he was a corporal called Arthur Maybury. Now, he was one of the original guys in the 2nd Battalion, but he then went off to, to be a signaller, to be one of these guys on the radios. And he'd come through Tunisia, I don't want to say unscathed, but he, he, he because he was a signaller, he was with the headquarters, which was a few uh, kilometres back from the front. And when he realised, obviously, he was going to be dropping into action in Sicily, he, he writing at the time, he confessed his fears about it. Um, and, and when he actually did drop in and he was off target, uh, he talks about himself being a frightened man alone in the dark. And what you realise about, about airborne warfare at that moment when uh, Arthur Maybury drops down and onto the uh, plains of Catania in Sicily is that, of course, uh, as they've been told in their training, you know, when you're a paratrooper, you don't have a, a, a front, a back and flanks, you know, the enemy can be at any point of the compass. You land, you know, they could be behind you, they could be in front of you. And therefore, the distinction between, oh, yeah, well, these are the guys, you know, the infantry guys, they're going to go in, they're going to be the ones running the real risks, whereas we're in the supporting arms, you know, signalers or Ordnance Corps or some of these other elements that were parachuted in. Uh, we'll be further back. We won't be in so much danger. No, you know, he was in just Nothing. as much stealthy about that position either i mean it is the most obvious place you would attack it's one big straight road running up beside of sicily i mean where that bridge is so i mean if you totally expecting somebody might show up and try and mess with you um that would be where you would expect it to be happened so it's not like they've got the advantage of being stealthy because it's it's obvious where you dump people if you wanted to attack totally it well it's so obvious that the germans put their own airborne operation in there at the same time you know so so, yeah, no, it's absolutely clear what, what the value of the, of the bridge is. Uh, and, yeah, there's no real element of surprise in that sense. And the firework display that went on both from the Royal Navy fleet shooting at their own planes by accident. And then, of course, the Italian and German defenders uh, hearing the aircraft coming in and, and opening up as well meant that absolutely everybody for miles around was warned uh, that paratroopers were inbound and were on the lookout for them. Um, so, yeah, quite a few guys got captured. Some of them, uh, like Maybury himself, uh, got captured. And then the, the Italian soldiers who captured him in their turn were then captured by the advancing British troops. So he managed to get out of it without going to a prison camp. Uh, but a good number of them did end up in prison camps as a result of that operation. I just, Chris is a naval historian, so every time you mention the friendly fire, I just know he's got his head in his hands like, oh, God. Totally yes, acceptable. It could have been so tragic. You don't take chances. <laughs> <laughs> go, on, um, go with the D-Day question. Uh, yeah, um, D-Day. Uh, so our Operation Marston must teach them some hard lessons that they then implement in North France because the brigade have a quite prominent role in D-Day. What kind of things were they doing in the Battle of Normandy? 
Well, yeah. I mean, uh, the whole airborne thing was was a huge part of of the D Day plan, of course. And and you know, the Americans were were hugely uh, invested in the airborne operation, uh, and so were the British. And and the idea of it w- was that they would use the airborne forces to secure the two flanks of of the of the beachhead. Uh, so to get on the the two sides. Uh, and block off uh, various possible routes of advance that the the Germans might have to dispute the beachhead and secure those two flanks. Now, on the American side, you know, they put their uh, operation in uh, on the Cotentin Peninsula uh, and to a place called Carentan, uh, and they used the 82nd and 101st Airborne to do that. Hundreds of aircraft, obviously gliders, the whole nine yards. The British aspect of this was landing at the eastern end, the other end of the beachhead, uh, pretty close to the city of Caen, which became so so uh, bitterly disputed through, through the Normandy bridgehead campaign, with the aim of blocking uh, a river that, if you like, marked the eastern boundary of the British uh, army and of the bridgehead there with the river Dive, uh, by blowing up bridges on that river and with the aim of blocking uh, what they confidently expected would be a German armoured counterattack against uh, the beachhead uh, once, once the naval landing started. So the British force that was put in there, the 6th Airborne Division, uh, which uh, rather confusingly was the second one to be formed, but they just called it 6th to try and confuse the enemy. But the 6th Airborne Division was therefore put in with the mission of denying certain bridges to the enemy taking certain bridges that would be useful for the British uh, across the Orne River and the Orne Canal, which were close to uh, Caen, and basically being ready to meet that German counterattack and to, and to take the blow, if you like, to absorb the shock of it on D-Day or the next day, whenever it, whenever it happened. And uh, for that reason, uh, their gliders that came in brought in lots of anti-tank guns, and the men were equipped with these handheld uh, anti-tank launchers called Piats. Uh, and a lot of preparation and thought was given to how they would deal with the expected German counterattacks, which indeed they were facing from the early hours of the 6th of June, once they landed and, and taken those two bridges, the so-called Pegasus Bridge uh, and the nearby bridge across the, uh, across the River Orne, uh, a sort of pair of bridges that were necessary for the British to move around on the eastern side of the bridgehead, uh, they, they, from the early hours of the 6th of June, did indeed get German counterattacks uh, in those places around those two bridges that they'd taken and uh, successfully fought them off. Obviously, we can't talk about airborne forces without mentoring Arnhem, can we? Um, it was an audacious plan. Was there any hope it could have been pulled off? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna tread carefully here because Arnhem is a thing that uh, obviously has um, produced a huge number of books and You've done a whole book just on Arnhem and the Airborne, couldn't you? Oh, totally. Well, there've been so many. I mean, uh, and you know, uh, and some fantastic books at that. And 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 there are a lot of people who are very very educated in the detail of it. You know, enthusiast historians who've gone and walked the ground and, and, and you know, know a, a ton about that campaign. Uh, and there's a whole separate question, I think, about why is it that that campaign attracts so much uh, historical and public interest and attention when, you know, the more successful one in Normandy and the more successful one to, to cross the Rhine in 1945 don't seem to attract quite the same uh, level of interest. But anyway... Uh, coming back to your question, uh, I mean, Arnhem, for, for Market Garden to work, everything had to go right. Uh, and uh, one of the things I found when I was researching the book was a letter uh, written a few years after the war, uh, just a few years after the war, by uh, Brigadier Lathbury, who commanded the 1st Parachute Brigade that went in, with the mission of taking the bridges in Arnhem. Uh, and, and he wrote that really the plan would only have worked if there'd been negligible resistance. And that that's what they expected was negligible resistance. And once it became clear 
that uh, that was not the case. Uh, they were in serious trouble. Indeed, uh, the memoir of one of the officers in the 2nd Battalion uh, quotes someone even on the first afternoon when the railway bridge is blown by the Germans. Uh, quotes an unnamed officer as saying, well, here's another cock-up. You know, this is turning into another cock-up. So I think from very early on, it was clear that there was meaningful resistance and that the whole plan, which really relied on a very optimistic uh, reading of events, both in terms of taking the bridges and the timescale for the relieving column from the 30th Corps to get up there and relieve the guys in Arnhem, uh, was uh, optimistic in the extreme. And I, I don't think... I mean, a lot of the history about it has looked at questions like, oh, well, you know, if this had counterfactuals, if you like, about, oh, well, if, if they'd been a bit quicker to Nijmegen, would it, you know, but the truth is, I think two salient things need to be um, kept in mind about the Arnhem battle. The first is that the British First Parachute Brigade never took any bridge in Arnhem. They, they got the northern edge of the uh, uh, road bridge, the main road bridge, and they defended it valiantly for three days, but they never took it in the sense of having both ends of the bridge. Uh, so they never controlled it. They were able to deny its use to the Germans uh, for uh, two, three days. And in that sense, uh, and also they were in serious difficulty from the first evening. Uh, you know, they were cut off in the town and, and you had the guys around the drop zones in the so-called cauldron. And you had the, the second battalion and one or two other people in the, in the middle of the town who within three days had basically been fought to the point of, of dispersal and surrender. So I think uh, Brigadier Lathbury's uh, uh, formulation a couple of years later, which was this would never have succeeded except against negligible opposition, is right. And, and you know, all the questions about why on earth did they launch the operation uh, when they had no real right to expect negligible opposition is, is, is a big question. And, and just going back to this point about... Um, you know, what you could or couldn't expect and, and, and why some of the counterfactuals I find a bit, a bit odd is, you know, these debates about, oh, well, you know, if they could have got there within 48 hours or 72 hours, uh, perhaps the forces coming up to meet the paratroopers could have saved them. Well, yes, possibly. But I think, I think the odds were very low from the get-go because what they don't seem to have done is, is done a similar calculation of how many um, German units could get there in the first 12 hours, the first 24 hours, and so on. They never seemed to have done that, that calculation. Uh, and the answer was there were a hell of a lot. So while some of the history uh, of the campaign has focused on these elements of the two um, SS Panzer divisions, that were, they were pretty knackered. They were regrouping in, 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 on the heath to the, to the west of Arnhem. There were lots of others, you know, that, but by, by the afternoon of the, of the second day, there were tanks that had come across from Germany. Uh, within two days, there were Tiger tanks that had been brought in from, from Germany. So all these other elements could be brought in to reinforce uh, uh, the German defence of Arnhem well ahead, even if things had gone to plan. And, and you know, there had been uh, leading elements of 30 Corps getting up there within two and a half, three days. So... Uh, it, it, it seemed to me a, a plan that was almost uh, doomed from the outset, one, one with very little chance of success. For feel the comparison to the Crete operation with the German paratroopers against uh, resistance, it wasn't as negligible as they hoped. But more importantly, moving away from the generals and the planning, how did the, how did the guys on the ground perceive the battle? How did, how did, how did they cope with it all? Well, they were in a, a terrible position, weren't they? They, they? they had been put into a situation. Now, some of them, uh, I think there is some evidence. I mean, certainly when you, you look at what people said uh, about, about their prospects, I think some of the old sweats um, knew even before they'd taken off that, um, that the chances were very slim. Uh, and even even people who hadn't been in battle, I mean, typically it was like the young officers who hadn't been in battle before, who were the keenest to, to go on the Arnhem operation. Um, 
even some of them, there, there was a guy in the 2nd Battalion who left a journal who, having been briefed on the previous version of the plan, so-called uh, Operation Comet, but it was to seize the same bridges. And he reflects in his journal after they've been briefing that it all seemed like a rather elaborate way to commit suicide. Um, so I think th th there were people who had doubts from the get-go, but on the other hand, there, there were these guys who... Who, who were so hungry to get into action and show what they could do that in the memorable words of one of them, if we'd been told to parachute into Berlin uh, and wait for the arrival of the Red Army, we would have done it. Um, so it's quite hard to generalise. But once they're on the ground, obviously, survival becomes the uh, becomes the first order of the day. I mean, they're, they're in a desperate battle for survival. And, and yes, it's true that a little bit like Sicily, one or two of the groups that, that end up in German captivity do fall into captivity quite quickly. Uh, and one might ask, ask questions about uh, whether they had regarded their position there as hopeless uh, and therefore surrendered quite swiftly. But obviously, for the most part, they fought very valiantly uh, and tried to do what they could for several days, uh, even when it was apparent that the attempt to link up with them was, uh, was, was, was going very slowly relative to the plan so so yeah they, they had to deal with it and of course eventually the remnants of the first airborne division were evacuated across the rhine uh and, and the survivors got out but uh, clearly with a good deal of of uh bitterness i think on the part of many and and recrimination about the way the whole operation had been designed and and why the relieving force hadn't been able to cover the ground more quickly we've been focusing on the gripping action that you've got because there's so much of it if you're doing this kind of narrative of the the parachute regiment in the second world war but i think the way that you've approached it has given you tremendous scope for um teasing out some real stories of personal tragedy and bravery as well is there anyone that is there a, i've done this kind of book you you get attached to certain people who did you get attached to who is who is your boy after writing this book well, that, Alex, you make a very good point, which is um, that, that the whole way of trying to tell the story is, is through the experience of um, a particular group of soldiers, some of whom are absolutely centre stage, half a dozen. And then there's a slightly wider group of, of guys who come in and out of the narrative. And uh, what we've been talking about a lot, for example, in the context of Arnhem is like the wider strategic context. But obviously you have to put in there for the reader to be able to understand uh, what's going on and, and why their position is so desperate when they get surrounded at Arnhem, for example. But, yeah, I mean, like you, I, I think that the key to all this is, is the fate of individuals, their hopes, their fears, you know, what, what their family situation is um, and that, that to me is central to the story. And, and uh, so there's, there's half a dozen guys who really are uh, centre stage during this. There is Johnny Frost, the, uh, the uh, irrepressible commanding officer of the 2nd Battalion, including at Arnhem. He gets taken prisoner there. There's Arthur Mabry, who I mentioned in, in Sicily. There's Jack Graben, who, who was a, a winner of a VC at Arnhem. Uh, then there's a guy called McLeod Forsyth, who was a Highlander who fought with them in the North African battles. Uh, and uh, uh, Arthur, uh, Arthur Mabry, I've done Jeffrey Pine Coffin. What an extraordinary name. He's another officer who um, he is key in the Normandy battle. He's the guy given the job of defending those two key bridges against the German uh, counterattacks. Now, to come to your question, uh, Jeffrey Pine Coffin, uh, what an extraordinary fellow. He's from this fat Devonian landed family where they've literally got sort of hundreds of years of service to the crown behind them. In some ways, just sort of utterly lovably uh, peculiar, you know, in the sense that members of the family were packed off to India for 30 years or whatever, or went exploring. Or And Pine Coffin himself has a very, uh, well, unfortunate or sad family position. He has a young son, Peter, but the, 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 his wife, the, the, the boy's mother, died. Uh, just as the war was getting underway. So, so Pine Coffin goes into battle in, you know, one dangerous situation after another from the first airborne operation in, that he does in North Africa through those terrible battles in Tunisia and everything else that happens, knowing that if anything happens to him, uh, the boy will be an orphan. Uh, 
Um, and I, I think he's great. I mean, he's completely he's he's completely a figure of a sort of um, almost like a sort of Palin-esque ripping arms quite type figure. Very old fashioned. You know, he gets he gets fired at um, late on in the war by a guy with um, a, a, a handheld rocket, a Panzerfaust. And the guy misses and then he fires again. And and Pine Coffin remarks, well, I couldn't help noticing the, the persistence of the Panzerfaust enthusiast. Uh, and he even, you know, he sort of marvels at the, at the, the hapless German soldier's dedication to trying to, to kill him, uh, to hit his vehicle. Eventually, a coffin has abandoned the vehicle and the German does hit the vehicle and bruise it up. And so he's got this kind of mordant wit, uh, but he's also he's very successful. The operation he does in North Africa is successful. The operation he, he does on D-Day is successful. And then he's involved in the Rhine crossing operation in 1945. And that's successful. So I think he's a remarkable character. Uh, and um, uh, although he's severely wounded, I won't go into all the detail uh, later on in the book, uh, his progress through the war is tremendous, I think. And, and he just comes back again and again, seemingly oblivious to the danger. At one point, he does write to, to one of his cousins who's looking after his son, uh, talking about, you know, what would happen if I if I uh, if I cop it, you know, or whatever? He's talking, making arrangements for financial provision for the boy if he falls in action. He knows absolutely what he's going into each time, uh, and he writes this letter actually just as the news of of what a debacle Arnhem has been is coming in. Uh, so he knows uh, he knows what he's going up against each time he parachutes into action. Uh, so I, I think he, he's a, he's a, he's an extraordinary character. And. Um- Mark, thank you so much for coming on to talk to us. I'm purposely not going to touch the Rhine crossing because I want to make people go and buy the book. Um, so we shouldn't give them everything that's in the book and talk about that. No, no. Uh, but thank you for talking about um, the development of the Parachute Regiment and also as well for starting to talk about some of the amazing personal stories that are in the book as well. Um, it's been fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on. No problem. Uh, we pleasure this in our history hack bookshop as well do buy it from there and not from amazon they've got enough money we don't have any uh, and if you buy it from bookshop.org then not only do independent booksellers get a cut but mark gets his cut and so do we and that's the way we want it so thank you very much our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book this is just a small taster as a result we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.